0: From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now a moment of silence before this episode begins. Of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord our rock and our redeemer, amen. This morning, we've got uh, a relatively long uh, lectionary text in front of us. Um, In fact, I was pretty tempted to try and cut it down, Uh, but the story itself uh, does its own work, and so I'm going to invite you for the next few moments here to listen to this reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 42. Uh, so hear now the word, this word from the Lord. Uh, he, that is Jesus, came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Uh, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. Uh, His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. And Jesus responded, if you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you'd be asking him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered, well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, "'Go get your husband and come back here.'" The woman replied, "'I don't have a husband.'" "'You are right, I don't have a husband,' Jesus answered. "'You've had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth.'" The woman said, "'Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem.'" Jesus said to her, "'Believe me, woman, the time's coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people will worship what you don't know, and we worship what we know because salvation's from the Jews. But the time's coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth.'" And the woman said, well, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he'll teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived, and they were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city, and she said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? Then they left the city and they were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples asked each other, has someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I'm fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four months and then it's time for harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying, that one sows and another harvests. I've sent you to harvest what you didn't work hard for. Others worked hard, and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city... "'believed in Jesus because of the woman's word "'when she testified, he told me everything I've ever done. "'So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, "'they asked him to stay with them, "'and he stayed there two days. And "'Many more believed because of his word. "'And they said to the woman, "'We no longer believe because of what you said, "'for we've heard for ourselves, "'and we know that this one is truly the Savior of the world.'" Uh, Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. God. There's so many things that could be said about this text. Uh, One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in my estimation, one that many of us have probably heard before, if not in whole and in part. It raises lots of questions. Um, But I, I think early... Listeners, and even many of us who've heard this sermon or this text preached uh, before, know that one of the central questions to ask right at the beginning of listening to this is to ask what would cause this woman, what would lead this woman to, to go and draw water out at noon, at the middle of the day. Now, to us who just sort of turn on the tap and the water flows, right, this is, uh, we, we kind of miss this, but. In that day and in that time, in that culture, especially in that kind of arid desert landscape, the tradition was that the women of the households, that they would leave in the early part of the day while it was still cool outside, and they would make their way to kind of the central watering hole, the well there in town, and gather the water that they needed for the day and bring it home. Um, Nobody would do this at kind of the hottest part of the day at noon, and, and so the fact that John tells us that right away, that it's right at noon when this, wa- this woman comes to this well to gather water, has the audience wondering, has, should have us wondering what would have to be true or what would cause this woman to come out here in the heat of the day to draw this water by herself, disconnected from all the other women in the community um, and all the social connection and opportunity that would surely happen every single morning Uh, as they gathered, It's not unlike if you drive through kind of rural North Carolina uh, at seven o'clock in the morning on one of these country roads and you see one of those little gas stations, right? And out front, there's like 12 guys with styrofoam cups kind of hanging out in front of their trucks. Like this was that, right? But she's not there. Instead, she's waiting and she's going later all by herself. Now, this question, I, I don't know why, it just is uh, more than maybe other times I've read the text has especially moved me this week, just thinking about what her own emotional landscape must have been. Like the scene that keeps playing for me to ask, like, what would cause this woman to go get water in the middle of the day is not a different question, in, in my opinion, than what would cause a middle schooler to eat their lunch in the bathroom, right? Like, this is the scene that's playing out. What would cause that college kid to stay home on Saturday night instead of go to the party that everyone on their dorm floor was going to? What what would cause that coworker, maybe you yourself, to go to the company Christmas party, but to sit in your car till the last possible moment, to avoid as much small talk as possible, and then go in only to leave as soon as you possibly could? I wonder if you've ever had one of those experiences. I wonder if you had a moment like that in middle school, right? You know, when people looked at this text traditionally and they asked that question of what would cause this woman um, to be so cut off from her community that she would go draw water in the middle of the day, one of the most common answer that's given is that, uh, and some of this comes from what we find out in a few moments from Jesus when he lets us know that this woman has had five different husbands and that the one she's with now isn't her husband. A lot of people read that and they've traditionally said, well, it sounds like this is kind of her just reward for being kind of promiscuous, that this woman was engaged in some sort of sexual immorality, that she was kind of a wrecker, right? That she'd found herself into all these situations. The interesting thing about that is that um, we're not told that in any way. Like nowhere in this text are we told that this woman had made some sort of uh, sexual deviant kind of decisions or behavior that that had defined or shaped her life. In fact, we see other occasions in the scriptures where Jesus is in conversation with somebody who's living in kind of uh, broken ways. And to a T, every single time, Jesus calls it out, regularly says, hey, uh, I've got grace for you, but there's also a heaping of dose here of truth. And so, like, uh, go and sin no more. In fact, my, my hunch is that if, if I had just pulled back and said, woman at the well, how many have heard this story? You know, two-thirds of the room, great. Uh, all the Bible scholars in the room, how does it end? What's the last thing Jesus says to her? I bet many of us would have just instinctively said, uh, go and sin no more. That's a different story, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't tell her to go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't forgive her. Nobody names any of this behavior. Nadia Bolts Weber, this uh, Lutheran pastor, she says that, and, and I think she's right here, that um, the odds are that it was something altogether different. Uh, first of all, in that time, women did not have the ability to divorce their husbands. A divorce can only take place at a man's decision, right? So men had all the agency. So if she's been divorced five times, and we're not sure that's even what happened, but if she's been divorced five times, it's because Five men have divorced her, right? What's likely, there's a handful of situations that could have happened. Uh, One is that she was married when she was a teenager, that uh, for whatever reason, the man she was married to dies. And the tradition of that time, especially in Jewish homes, is that uh, one of that man's brothers would then marry her to take care of her. Maybe he dies and it's another brother and another brother and another brother. Maybe she's been passed through a family five brothers deep and seen untold grief and loss, right? Another uh, likely scenario, probably more likely, is that this woman, uh, for whatever reason, wasn't able to have children. And so as she married these men who were very much interested in kind of building a family and having heirs to pass things down to, realized quickly that this woman could not provide a child for them, there's a very good chance that they divorced her. And that happened again and again and again. She, she might have been a victim of some sort of abuse. She may have had some significant disability. Whatever it was that led her to this moment, uh, the odds are it wasn't that she was sexually promiscuous, but that she had had a heck of a journey. And so when you ask the question, what would lead this woman to go out in the middle of the day to gather water for her family or for herself and to do so alone, cut off from the people that she was living her life with, the the odds are that probably what's going on is that she is tired of the gaze of everybody in her town. She, She is over everybody whispering around her. That she has decided it's no longer worth it to show up among all these other women who are being taken care of and protected in some sort of way and have matching outfits and shoes and appointments at 11 o'clock at the club, right? To, to see that played out in her face again and again. She doesn't belong. Her life is not their life. and She's just sick of being seen in this humiliating, pitying way. And so she's decided the only company she can keep is her own. And so she goes at the middle of the day to avoid contact with others, to just live in what little peace she can find. And there she bumps in to Jesus. And Jesus does the unthinkable, right? That not only does he show up at a time that she expects no one to be there, but then at least she's relieved because she knows as a man, and especially as a Jewish man, that surely he's not going to even address her. And yet he crosses all these boundaries. He he immediately starts a conversation not only with a woman, but with a foreigner and a foreign woman who's had multiple husbands, right? This is like a PR worst case scenario for Jesus. This is the photo you do not want on social media, right? And it's happening right here and right now. And so Jesus says to her, hey, can, uh, can you give me a drink of water? That's where it starts. And she replies, um, I don't know if you know this, but you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're a man. I'm a woman. You shouldn't even be talking to me. And then he says, well, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, not only would you get me a drink, but you'd ask me for water. And I would give you living water such that you would never need to come back to this well and this experience that you're having right now. And she says, okay, fine, I'll bite. Bring out the magic water, right? And he says, okay. But first, go get your husband. Which feels like just a fill-in-the-blank kind of move, you know? Just like, why... Like, is, is Jesus heaping on more guilt and shame here? Is he just participating in, in, in the very thing that she's experienced? I think because of where the conversation goes and what ultimately happens, we, we know that that's not what this was. That instead of avoiding and small talk and sort of ignoring the gaping wound in her life, that Jesus, he just names it directly. You know, when Jesus tells her, listen, uh, I've got living water, that when you drink it, you never have to drink again, she points out to him, I'm just noting the obvious, you don't even have a bucket, right? So I'm not sure how you plan on getting this water. And I think in Jesus sort of replying to her about her relationship status and her history, I think part of what he's saying is like, "I, I may not have a bucket, but you're showing up at the wrong well. He's, he's beginning to take her on a different sort of conversation. This whole thing is just sort of set the ground for something else. A couple really interesting things that um, we might miss just being modern readers, and we're, we're having uh, a wonderful time kind of exploring some new ways to read the Scripture together as a church right now on Wednesday nights. Uh, here in this room, we had our first class this last week, but one of the things that like we wouldn't typically notice, but that early Uh, Hebrew Christian readers notice, is that like numbers mean something in the Bible. Not always literally this many people, you know, it's not like they just, wow, 5,000 people on the nose showed up for this party, right? Like there's a significance to this. So one of the things you've probably heard or just intuited along the way is that like the number seven pops up a lot in the scriptures. It's kind of a a placeholder for like complete, something that's whole, something that's been made complete. The the earth is created in seven days. Uh, Joseph's got to work for seven years to marry Rachel. The Pharaoh has a dream of seven fatted calves, right? When when Joshua marches around Jericho, they do it uh, seven times, and it's on the seventh day, that the, right? So seven is this like holy, complete number. And so six in the Bible begins to represent sort of this like uh, painful lack, this sort of almost but not quite enough experience, right? This Uh, painful deficiency or disappointment. And so Jesus performs his first miracle of turning water into wine. They only have six jars available full of water, right? And in this moment, Jesus says, we're told John's account that this woman had five husbands and is currently on to her sixth. In essence, he's saying the well that you've been going to, this well of relationships, this place that you've been hoping you would find kind of the security, the identity, the fulfillment that you've been longing for, you've had like all the husbands and yet somehow you've never truly felt loved. The second thing that's going on in this conversation that we miss kind of reading it in English is that in the Greek, she and Jesus keep talking about a well, but they keep using different words. So every time she talks about a well, she uses the Greek word for a cistern, which would be like you dig a hole in the ground and you fill it yourself with water. And so this is kind of like stagnant water that could potentially, over time, grow diseases and all that kind of stuff. It also just, over time, naturally leaks. So every time she talks about a well, she says, I'm going to get water a well. You want me to get water from this well? You didn't bring a bucket for this well, whatever. She's talking about a cistern. Every time Jesus talks about a well, he uses the word for like a, a natural spring, This is kind of another riff on living water, water that's always moving, always flowing, has its own source, the kind of water that you need to drink that will sustain you and keep you healthy, that you don't have to manufacture, that never kind of leaks or lets out, right? And so we get the story of this woman who's who's tried every, who's been a part of and placed her hope in every relationship only to be disappointed again and again and again, possibly not even by her own fault, just what life has dealt her. And Jesus says, I may not have a bucket for this well, but you're showing up to the wrong well for the, for the true thirst of your soul. And you, you've, you've had six of these men in your life who, who've proven not worth putting that on, right? And the picture he gives her is that these relationships are like a cistern, that, that you can go to them and you can drink water from them and it may quench your thirst for a second, but more often than not, this has been bad for you. And even on the days where it hasn't been bad, it's leaky. It doesn't hold. It never fully finally satisfies. And Jesus keeps offering her this other thing. This this image of a a well that's been dug out by hand in a spring is actually a a pretty famous passage in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 2, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament uh, stands before Israel and says this, this is God's indictment against you. You've committed two crimes. You've walked away from the living spring of God's love in your life, and you've dug out wells for yourself. Yeah. This is what you've done. You've turned away from the love that won't fail, the love that will fulfill, the love that will quench that thirst, and you've tried to find it and build it in other places. And so as you have this is what Jeremiah says. As you've pursued these worthless things, you've found yourself struggling with your own worth. You wonder if you belong, if you have any value. This has come as a natural byproduct of where you're drinking. I think part of the reason that this text shows up for us in Lent is to present to us the same difficult, honest question of um, how do we do the same? Like, where are you thirsty in this life? And and how have you been going trying to get that thirst quenched in cisterns instead of this living spring? I, um, I wonder if Jesus was here today and he was talking to us. Maybe some of us in the room, he would be like, yeah, you're on your sixth girlfriend or boyfriend and it's you still don't feel seen. right?" Maybe that's the story for some of us this morning. Others of us, it, it could be you you've already gotten five promotions and the sixth one's already pretty much guaranteed and you still feel like a failure in front of your father, right? You, you are now working out five days a week and you're considering adding a sixth day and you're still disgusted by your own skin, right? The, Jesus is kind of looking at us with the same kind of, question. Like, what is that? W- will you name kind of the, the deficiency in the places you're going to get fulfilled? It's a hard question to sit with. You know, most of the time when people talk about this text, um, they emphasize, I think rightly so, and it's a sermon for another day, but it's part of what we love about Jesus, how he just, he seems to always go to the outsider and make them an insider and um, and make insiders feel like outsiders in the most wonderful ways, right? Um, and so most of the time we go, this, Jesus is talking to this woman he should be talking to, and this foreigner, and like, this is so shocking, and I can't believe it's happening. And that's all true. It's also true, though, that this story plays out along a pretty conventional, like, uh, Hebrew uh, storyline, right? Um, and the storyline is basically like Hebrew rom-com, which we don't really have romantic comedies anymore. It's it's disappointing to me. I'm sorry, it just is. Apparently they don't sell like superhero movies. But, this story has actually happened three other times in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaac and Jacob and Moses all find themselves wandering through a foreign land, stop at a well, are greeted by a woman from that place. All three of them ask for a cup of water. In all three occasions, the woman returns back to her village, gathers all of her people, brings them out to the well, and says, this man's asked for water. And they all go, we like him. They get married. There's a party, right? This is how uh, Jacob and Isaac and Moses all find spouses, So John's telling this story about this woman who's had six partners who haven't fulfilled her. And Jesus comes up to her at this well, and this is kind of the moment. The song starts playing. It's raining in New York. They're running down the street. They're knocking on the door. Like, we are sure there's about to be a wedding right here. Jesus is about to get hitched, right? This is kind of the way this story is being told. But instead of her finally finding her man, something so much better happens. She finds herself. She's returned to herself. That it's in the presence of Jesus that she is restored to who she was made to be. And this is the part of the story that I had just always missed. In fact, uh, it was Barbara Brown Taylor who helped me see it this week. And I'm just going to read you this beautiful insight from her. She says this, Barbara Brown Taylor says, By telling the woman who she is, Jesus shows her who he is. And by confirming her true identity, he reveals his own. And that's how it still happens. The Messiah is the one in whose presence you know who you really are. The good and the bad of it, the all of it, the hope in it. And the Messiah is the one who shows you who you are by showing you who he is who crosses all boundaries, breaks all rules, drops all disguises, speaking to you like someone you have known all your life. I'm going to check this. So that you go back to face people you thought you could never face again, and you speak to them as boldly as he spoke to you. Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. This is the story of a woman being put back together, her life being restored, given her voice back, This woman that we find at the beginning of the text, who's going out in the middle of the day, not only so she can avoid the horrible small talk, but so that they don't even have an opportunity to see her or comment on her life. This same woman, after a bit of time with Jesus, being offered some living water, finds herself going back to the same town to face the same people she's been avoiding and speaking boldly to them and telling them, come out with me, I've found the one who's the Messiah. This is one of the most profoundly beautiful transformation stories. One Catholic theologian, James Allison, he says, this is exactly what faith looks like. If you want to know what it's like to trust Jesus, to be in a relationship with God, that faith, one way of understanding it, is faith is like relaxing in the presence of someone who deeply loves you. It's like being with someone that you are just sure Uh, delights in you. And if you've ever had the gift of being in the presence of someone like that, you know what happens. Allison says that what happens is you become funnier, you become softer, you become less defensive, you become more of yourself. This is what happens for this woman. And as a result, The church has passed down her story for ages. In fact, this conversation that Jesus has with her is the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in the scriptures. Longer than any conversation he has with his disciples, with his family, with his accusers. More words, more airtime poured out for this one scene than any other in Jesus' life. She's also the first person that Jesus reveals his identity to. I don't know if you caught it, but there she's like, hey man, you're, you're talking a big game. You think you're better than Jacob? And he's like, I am. Like, wink. Like, that's the name they God offers, right? Moses, I am who I am. He's like, I am. I, I am. I am. This is the first person who hears the truth, comes to see and know the truth of who God is. This becomes the first evangelist in the life of the church. She goes back and she tells the community they come out and it says that many Samaritans, people who would never even associate with a Jew, begin to believe her account, her word, her testimony, and this is who Jesus is. She becomes the most influential person in her town. Right? And Jesus has like a, a profound grace who's famously for like people going, hang on, hang on. He's like, I gotta keep moving, I gotta keep moving. On this occasion, he says, I'm gonna stick around for two days because he wants to make sure, at least this would be my take, that this woman's witness is validated. What she said is true. I am who she said I am. You won't dismiss her voice. I've given it back to her. And so this morning, Church on Morgan, as we continue to make our way through the season of Lent, I, I can only imagine all the places where you've been disappointed in this life. And I don't know what the cisterns are that you're going to and returning to again and again and again, only to find yourself still thirsty and often even sick. But, but God is inviting you to come and to drink deep on the living water, to trust that he is who he says he is, to spend some time in his loving presence that you might be returned to yourself that all the hustle that you've put into those five plus one things that have somehow only made you more alone and feel less and less yourself, he's longing to restore and to redeem. And so may we take Jesus at his invitation that he offers just two chapters later when he says, all who are thirsty, come to me. All who are thirsty, come to me and living waters will flow out of your belly into the world. May we know the joy of that transformation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Thank you for joining
0: today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.